This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The Last Factor Podcast. What is up, college lacrosse fans? We are on the 52nd episode of the Lax Factor Lacrosse Podcast. It's finally here now. College lacrosse is back. Fall ball is upon us, and we can all rejoice just a little bit. Uh, there's, it, but honestly, there's nothing better than the fall for me. I mean, I like the spring better. I will say that, so I guess that's not totally true. But I like the fall because we have college football eases us one week in you know it comes in the week before NFL football hits so you get your college football fix then you get the NFL fix and you get a handful of weeks of NFL football prior to fall ball hitting us and interrupting that for a little bit I remember as a coach that was one of the bittersweet aspects of fall ball was you often had a Sunday tournament or some kind of you know event for fall ball on a Sunday and you would end up missing Giants football uh Back in the day when they were a little bit better, I'm sure there were some rough years then too, but NFL football with a little sprinkle of college lacrosse, that is pretty awesome. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, this is going to be a two-part podcast. You can always go to laxfactor.com, find the latest blog post about the, the, the latest episode, and on that, we'll, from now on, we'll always have the full audio. So if you want to hear this full podcast immediately, you can listen to it by going to laxfactor.com. It'll be the, main, the first article you see when you hit the site. Um, it'll be broken up into two parts on YouTube. First part coming out Tuesday, this morning, you're seeing this today, and then the second part on Thursday. So in this first part, we're going to discuss uh, Jim Nagel's uh, new column on inside lacrosse. Nagel coached at Oneonta State, at, at Colgate, at Stony Brook, and this year he's uh, this fall anyway he's writing for Inside Lacrosse, and it was he's got two parts out so far uh, covering just fall ball. He's traveling around and he's hitting fall ball practices up at various schools. Hit up, um, he's already hit Colgate up, so that's cool. And we'll talk about that in this first part. So first part, we're going to talk about Jim Nagel's fall ball experience, and then in the second part, which comes out on Thursday, we are going to preview Hopkins. And like I said before, a lot of people think these previews aren't full team previews. We're not going to get deep into talking about the guy that were on the bench last year that we can expect more out of this year. This is just who do these schools have coming back. We've already done Syracuse, we've done Virginia, and I believe we've done Yale, and uh, now we're going to do Johns Hopkins um, next. We may have even done Penn State. Nope, Syracuse, Virginia, and Yale. So this week, Hopkins gets a treatment. We're just going to talk about guys that are returning that are going to be key to helping Hopkins improve upon uh, their, their season last season. So that'll, that'll be the second part. That comes out on Thursday. Today, talking about Jim Nagel and fall ball. As always, there's three ways you can support the podcast. First, like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and then generally just share this video wherever you hang in social media. Help us get the word out. That's the number one way that you can support the podcast. And you can also go to laxfactor.com and read the accompanying blog post, and you can watch the full podcast. We break it up into two parts for YouTube only. So you can watch, listen to the full podcast going to laxfactor.com. Uh, and you can also go to laxfactor.com and buy some swag, t-shirts, shorts. And what we're going to do 
for the next couple of podcasts is comment down below something thought provoking, something on topic about what we're talking about here. All it has to just be is a comment that references what we're talking about in any way or manner. It could be you could bust me up. You can say I suck. You can say I'm awesome. You can say you agree, disagree. You can throw in a new point and you'll get entered to win a pair of these rampage lacrosse shorts some people think they're ugly i think they're awesome peacock design there was only i think 12 of them 12 of them printed and people just have not been buying these shorts specifically so we're going to uh auction these off to really not auction them off it's more of a raffle uh just comment down below and you'll be entered to win we'll do this over the next couple of episodes and then announce a winner down the road so let's get into our first topic here I used to play uh, on a box team called the Garden Gnomes in a, a Binghamton area uh, box across league, men's league, uh, open. And Jim Nagel and his coaching staff at the time they were at Oneana, they played on this box across team that we had. And and it was kind of a rivalry where in the summer, none of us played really played together. It was kind of we took every winter, you know, four four or five guys from various teams would all converge and we would not even that many, probably just two or three from a couple different teams would converge and we would play winter box together uh, on a team called the garden gnomes. And then uh, over time, maybe even right off the bat Nagel and his coaching staff, I forget uh, the other guys that, that, that played. Um, I think the current uh, uh, coach at Oneana state played, he was an assistant at the time for Nagel also. So there was like three or four of them and we won the box league more often than not with that, with that squad. So I don't, I, I don't know Nagel personally outside of, I played box with him and uh, we had a couple of ha ha's and, and crap like that. One of the assistant coaches though, he was, I think he was the all-time leading scorer at Springfield where I think Nagel was an assistant at one point as a, as a student. I remember him busting out a backbreaker like catches the ball, caught the ball on the crease about five yards out and then busted a backbreaker and uh, I don't actually think it went in I think the, the goalie did save it Tommy Stevens you were probably that goalie um, but it, it was pretty crazy they were they, they were just all serious ballers and they were the reason mostly that we uh, won won that league every year anyway I digress Nagel's next stop after Oneana State was uh, uh, Colgate he ended up coaching at Colgate and uh, I actually had had the pleasure of going up there and seeing a couple of games while he was the coach there and um, not actually at Colgate. I saw Colgate play a couple of times at Syracuse, and it makes sense that he would go there. He had a good he had a good run there. He coached, I believe, he coached the Twarton winner that came out of there, and I can't remember fully, but he he made an NCAA tournament and uh, you know had I think the his best season there was an eleven and four season, uh, if not the year before he left, um, the year he had left. So it made sense that he would do that. Had a great, a good run. Uh, so in in this practice specifically, he was watching a evening run. And uh, coach, coach Matt Kerwick, uh, like many coaches, he's trying to get his players to focus on development. In the fall, you're trying to get the guys to just improve, work on fundamentals. A lot of teams will stress stress the fundamentals. Kerwick apparently decided he was going with development. You know, let's develop every time. Ev- everything we do is for a purpose. Everything we do, you have to do it full out because we want to make sure that at all times we're developing as players. And uh, specifically, he wanted them to work on things 
that they were uncomfortable with. And I, it didn't go into detail, but I suspect, you know, when, when you try to force a player to do things they're uncomfortable with, that may include, say, uh, do or die dodges, where, you know, it's kind of one-on-ones in practice. That's really what you're doing. You're putting two players on an island against each other, and you're just making them battle until either a shot gets off or the defender beats the, the player into submission. So a lot of times with the one-on-ones, that's what you're battling for. You're trying to put these players in uncomfortable uncomfortable positions, uh, working with your weak hand, uh, be, behind the backs, a.k.a. BTBs. You know, they just work on things that and develop skills that when shit hits the fan and you're in a game, if you work on that odd shot, that backhanded shot, that, you know, the, the one-timers off of rebounds and things like that, these weird things and in, in games that you're, you're the chance that you stick that game winning shot in an awkward situation uh, is, is greatly increased. So I, I don't think that was necessarily all the things he was doing, but that's what they mean when they say they like to have players work on things that make them uncomfortable in practice, especially in these early practices. So that was one of the, the themes Nagel had talked about. And he talked about how, because it was a night practice, you end up in fall ball battling between having morning practices or really late evening practices because you end up getting second dibs on the facilities. So you'll end up having a 6 a.m. practice or maybe an 8 p.m., 10 p.m. practice sometimes, depending on your facilities and how things pan out for you, especially at some of the smaller schools. So he talked about how you had to kind of manage your expectations and your practice plan around the energy that you thought you were going to get from those players because these kids are going to school and it's late hours and odd hours. So between all of their commitments, you know, when you start practicing at weird hours, you end up having to kind of know what to expect and tailor it. So I, I think in this case here, what he was saying was uh, smart by the Colgate staff was that they had a scrimmage. They kind of kept things really upbeat, quick, uh, quick, uh, a bunch of, um, game-like situations, uh, uh, working transition, and then getting into a full-field scrimmage that saw them go into sudden death overtime in the scrimmage. So that's a really good way when you have a late-night practice of keeping guys motivated is, is make them compete in all of the drills. Whatever you set up, make sure it's quick-paced, make sure you're getting from one thing to another, maybe even keep the practice tighter, but just try to keep them going and keep them a- engaged, which is apparently what the Colgate staff did a really good job of that night. And then a funny anecdote, he had gotten sidetracked by the the drone. He had talked about how the drone that was shooting practice. So I, I, I'm curious, and if any of you coaches out there do this sort of thing where you have your, your more elaborate camera setups where now you're shooting practice and breaking down what you're doing in practice, if any of you have drone footage, that would be awesome. I'd like to see that. Nagel's second stop, he goes to Hobart, and it's the flip. This time it's a morning practice. So in this practice, they ended up being a lot more involved in terms of what they worked on and in their teaching. Um, and in the in the morning, you can get by and do some more slow-paced mental skill stuff. It's not that they're going to be always perfectly engaged for that sort of thing, um, but it, it you know you work on your fundamentals and just getting through reps and trying to get them as much as you can to remember those reps and to learn during those reps in the morning. And then in the evening, you tend to go a little bit quicker pace and do a little bit more scrimmage transition stuff and bang, bang, bang type stuff. So in this, this was a morning practice. So one of the, Oh, and one of the other key things here is Hobart in upstate New York. They've always had a field house and it was kind of trash. Like I remember playing, uh, we did a fall. I played at Cuca my freshman year and we had a fall ball scrimmage and we played in that field house against some Syracuse club team many years ago. And even then, I mean, we thought it was cool, but even then it was trash. Um, but it was not a really nice facility. And now they have a full field bubble on campus with a full field underneath that. 
So that's huge because from, you know, A, they're in Geneva, New York, in the Finger Lakes, so their winners up there are brutal. Um, but B, just a better facility is better for recruiting and getting guys in there. And Hobart struggles already being the type of Division One program they are without scholarships and, and things like that. I mean, they, they, guys still get help, but it's not they're not a, a – funded program in the sense of you know they have equal footing in terms of scholarship money and things like that as the others so if i'm wrong let me know but that's always how i've understood it so coach greg raymond uh he was big on fundamentals and tempo now tempo was something you saw out of hobart last year their offense last year was insanely fast paced uh one of the highest scoring offenses in division one they i think it was a 1916 or 1917 or 1816 or something like that score against syracuse um as, as they were just filling it up, uh, Hobart could score. They were really up-tempo. They turned the ball over a lot as part of that. But that's part of why this fall they're working on, on fundamentals and tempo because you have to be solid on your fundamentals to be able to push tempo the way they do. And uh, it was on full display last season, as I said. He was adamant about getting it right. Now, this is something you don't always see in fall ball, or I should say you do, but maybe not at an early morning practice. <coughs> Excuse me is uh, stopping drills. He was willing to stop drills to make sure that they got it right. So in terms of installing their system, he's kind of doing this like a book in the sense that we're at the beginning and you're going to progress through. He's making sure they get it right at the very beginning. So as he's installing the system, he's making sure they understand every aspect of it and get it right from the beginning. I like that. I like that. So he was willing to do that and, and, and was attempting to get them to achieve perfection even this early in the season. That's going to set the tempo and the mood for later on, especially with that fast pace uh, play they're going to be forced to try to take care of the ball and really become solid on the fundamentals so I dig that and I get that um, with their new offensive coordinator um, Steve Brundage they worked on shooting and other and got right into offensive progressions and sets so they're already starting to install um, their system but once again emphasis about on all of it was getting it right understanding here's the base system boom we're going to make sure that we get it right and Let's see. Oh, okay. I thought I was jumping. I thought I was, I see Nagel's name again and I'm thinking Nagel and Colgate and I, I, a total brain fart right there on camera for you to see or for you to hear if you're listening via audio. So, uh, the other thing that Nagel mentioned that he liked was they, they put an emphasis on crease play. Now he, he had talked about in the article about how he thinks a crease play is kind of a dying thing, a dying art. I would disagree. I would think that um, maybe overall it is, but we still have seen some insanely talented off-ball guys. Guys like Mac O'Keefe aren't necessarily crease players. He's more of a perimeter to to high crease kind of off-ball talent. But um, Bradley Voigt at Syracuse last year, um, you got the Undertaker at Yale um, running around also. So there there are some real high-quality high off-ball finishers still running around here between box players and um, Canadian players and, and uh, um, native players and even the Americans getting in on some of that dirty, dirty finishing. So I don't think the crease is a dying art, and maybe it's making a resurgence in, in the new lacrosse with some of the new rules and things like that. But either way, he mentioned that they worked a lot on the crease and that, that that's understandable in, in transition play, hitting crease guys, cutters and things like that is important as guys fall asleep, as you work slow breaks and things of that sort. So that made sense as well. And then they finished up with a lot of unsettled uh, situations, transition drills. And he said it was a great, great practice at, at Hobart's new facility, which is huge for them. His third stop was Cortland. 
crazy facility. They're going to be hosting the Denver and Syracuse uh, fall ball scrimmage here this coming up weekend. I think it's October 5th, 7 p.m. Uh, they're selling tickets. It's open to the public, and you can go. It's some kind of fundraiser. So if you're in the area, be sure to go check that out. I will be there watching that as well as a fan. Uh, huge roster. A, a, a lot of these D3 schools like uh, Cortland, you're going to see they'll come out with Division One size rosters in the fall and in the early spring as they have guys trying out it, just monster rosters. And they spent all of the first stages of practice working on fundamentals, midfielders working on shooting, making sure they weren't facing toward the sidelines. Specifically, as they were working the shooting with the mids, they were trying to get them to turn their hips upfield and not get that shot off while you're facing the sideline where you don't have any, any uh, uh, uh on your shot. So you kind of, as you're getting, as you're dodging down that alley, turn your hips and get into the shot. So that was one of the things they worked at. The attack specifically worked on footwork and, and, and focusing on left and right dodging, making sure that they can go both ways. That's one of the, a very important aspect of the Cortland system. Defensively, they worked on one versus, you know, uh, one-on-one fundamentals with an emphasis on the breakdown. And that's, this is a drill I like where instead of the attackman or the midfielder just starting with the ball, having the defender already there, the defender would toss the ball out to the player and then come out and break down on them as they were starting their dodge. So it teaches them, you know, in a real game situation, your player's receiving a pass and starts to go on you. You may have been sloughed off a little bit. Maybe it was a skip pass, but it teaches them to get out on and close that space on the ball carrier, make sure they don't have an easy outside shot and then break down and then get into your defensive stance. So they worked on that as well. And from there, they go into uh, uh, regular four-on-three fast breaks, four-on-four, working their way up to a full-field scrimmage. I suspect there was probably some five-on-four, five-on-five, and then, you know, six-on-six. Maybe uh, there was a thing we used to do where we called it the Duke drill, where you start in a four- a four on three fast break, throw the ball out to a midfielder up top. The other, the other midi that was in, that was the fast break midi in the four on three, he chases. So the other way going back, now you have a four on four, toss it to another midi. Now you've got another fast four on three fast break with two trailing midis to make it a five on four. Then going back the other way to the, to another midi at midfield. Now it's five on five with trailing mids the other way. So every step of the way you get a transition shot. If you don't have a transition shot, then you work that advantage. So on one side, you're always working a man up advantage on the other side. If if you don't score on the break, you're working in short number, four on four, five on five uh, quick sets immediately going to the rack on those. And you work your way up to a six on six on the side that you were short the whole time. Duke drill. Uh, maybe at some point we'll uh, if, if I find someone who's already put that up, link it. If someone has that kind of concept, that Duke drill on video so we can show that um, link it in the comments below and I'll put that up on uh, uh, in a future video. and We'll talk about it. But anyway. Uh, they worked on that all the way up through, and and it it is it's crazy because Cortland's facility is one of the best D three facilities in the country. So I'm looking forward to going up there and seeing it. And for the the when I come back and I do a recap of the Syracuse Denver scrimmage, I'll make sure to include some pictures and things, and you'll see a little bit of that facility because it's monster. They have two huge turf fields side by side with a huge bleacher in between them that you can walk between the two fields. That's at least how it was set up the last time I had been there. Um, we're going to talk about another one of these. So that was the first installment, uh, that Nagel did. So be sure to check, uh, there's a link in the description here to Nagel's author page within inside lacrosse. And you can go in and read all of the articles that, that Nagel is putting up. He's going to hit up Yale Hofstra, LIU and St. John's that's already out. So you can actually read the, the article that I just talked about as well as the next one I'm going to do next week. So that, that link to the articles is in the description. And then 
Uh, it's just for coaches specifically. It's great insight. It's good insight into what are, what are some of these teams working on now in the fall. So for you, high school coaches, even you know some lower level college coaches, JUCO coaches, we're all always in need of some ideas or just validation that what we're doing is right. So it, it was cool seeing this insight, and I wanted to share that with you specifically. So that is the end of part one here. If you are listening. I'm going to get right into part two. If you're watching on YouTube, this is the end of part one. So be sure to come back on Thursday for part two of this podcast, where we're going to break down Hopkins top returning players for 2020. That is going to come out Thursday. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, if you want to hear the full podcast, if you're on YouTube right now and you want to hear this full podcast and you want to hear the Hopkins uh, crap right away, simply go to laxfactor.com. You'll see the article that, that's, that accompanies episode 52 and you can uh, go into that and listen to the full version, uh, but we will have the second part posted on YouTube on Thursday. So be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell if you're on YouTube and uh, share the video. Thank you. Go to laxfactor.com and get some swag. And now I'm going to ditch you guys to do part two uh, of this uh, podcast. And I'm back. See, if you're uh, listening, then I'm not even going to cut this. So I'm just here. So here is part two of episode 52. If you're watching on YouTube, you already saw part one where we talk about Jim Nagel's fall ball tour. In part two of this podcast, we are going to talk about the top returning players that Johns Hopkins has coming back for 2020. Now, first off, this is not a full team review. I'm not talking about guys that were on the roster last year that maybe were on the bench waiting to play and that are going to be expected to do big things this year, partly because I don't know who the hell all those guys are. By January, early February, before everybody gets started playing, I will. But right now, I don't. So right now, I'm just going through reasons that Hopkins is going to be expected to easily repeat their success from this year, especially their late season success, uh, if not improve upon it. So I'm just going to talk about the guys that we know they have coming back. These are the guys that put up stats last year or that played really solid roles last year. And, and that's it. So we're going to talk about eight or so guys, maybe not even. I can't remember how many I put on my list. Now, notable losses. Uh, they lose Mar, Concanon. Uh, they lose Foley on defense. They lose Kuhn. Uh, they lost some guys. They lost some short stick midfielders specifically. So on defense, I think they've lost more than they did on offense. Now, yes, they lost Marr, huge contributor. Concanon, uh, you know, he he put up his fair share of points also. But as I always say with off-ball attackmen, which Marr certainly was, they're replaceable. It's hard to replace, I think, more hard. It's more difficult to replace his leadership probably and his attitude. He had some sweet toot on him. But uh, in terms of his point production, they're going to be able to replace the point production with another off-ball guy. Off-ball guys, every team has that guy who can snipe. Uh, they'll often put those guys in, and help develop those guys as man-up uh, players. You know, a guy like um, Bradley Voigt at Syracuse who tore it up last year as an off-ball attackman, he, that's how he developed. He developed as, an, uh, as a, uh, an, a player on their man-up sets uh, in his early career. So anyway... Yeah, they lose Mar. That's the big one. Uh, well, not even the big one. I mean, they lose uh, Foley and Kuhn. That's pretty big, too. So, But they have so many key pieces returning, and those are the guys I'm going to talk about, the known quantities that are coming back. Most of um, – okay, so we're going to get right into it here. Uh, the first guy, the most obvious guy that we're going to talk about here, uh, it's just he, he, he gives you, uh, Hopkins fans all the reason to be excited, is number 32, Joey Epstein. He will be a sophomore attackman. 48 goals, 25 helpers, and 73 points in 2019. 36% shooting percentage, 64% on cage. And uh, 34 turnovers, which isn't bad for a ball-carrying attackman. USILA All-American, All-Big uh, Ten Conference, Big Freshman of the Year. 
accolades galore, but the truth is he is going to be a Twarton candidate his entire career moving forward. He may be a Twarton finalist, if not his, definitely I think his last two years, he will be a Twarton finalist, but he'll easily be a candidate this upcoming year, if not a finalist this year. I, I mean, 73 points as a freshman and you got Mar gone now. So his, he's been voted a team captain, which is a big deal for a sophomore at a program like Johns Hopkins by his teammates. So there's no reason to believe he's not going to put up 90 plus points, if not more next season, and then possibly be considered a Twarton, uh, definitely a Twarton nominee, definitely a candidate towards the end, but he might be a finalist. Um, In Hop's first meeting with Penn State, he was held to just one point. In Hop's remaining four games, he put up six points against Maryland, five against Maryland in that next game where they played him back-to-back, seven points against Penn State the second time, and six points against Notre Dame. So the kid's no longer a rookie by the end of that season. And you say that, you know, freshmen become sophomores, usually the last third uh, of the season, and they start playing like vets at that point when they have this this type of uh, talent. Uh, the sky is the limit for Epstein. He's a vet without the mileage that vets normally that vets normally come with. His lacrosse IQ is off the charts. I fully expect him to be a Twarton candidate, as I said, uh, with the potential of being a finalist as junior and senior campaigns. He, by, by the end of his career, he is going to go down as one of the best to do it, not just at Hopkins, which would be saying something in itself, but one of the best to do it all time. The kid's got that much talent. Water break. Ugh. Done a lot of talking here. So look forward to seeing his um, sophomore campaign. Number 14, Cole Williams, senior attackman, 27 goals, 19 assists, and 46 points last year as a junior. And I'd say a lot of people would have called that a a letdown. I expected Williams to get above 60 points um, uh, last year, and he he didn't. So I would call that kind of a letdown season for him. I bet you he would consider it the, the, the same. 26% 26% shooting percentage, 51% uh, on cage. So we put him on cage, but put some popcorn up. I think he he had a 26% shooting percentage uh, as a sophomore also, and I expected that to improve. You often expect a player's shooting percentage to improve. But what I've noticed since I've been watching is where attackmen, you know, that our breakout guys, maybe his sophomore year, but his junior year, he's a known quantity. It's hard to improve that shooting percentage with the extra attention, extra guys on your hands. They lose guys like uh, Tenney and... Um, Stanwick, who were great feeders and, and opened th- a lot of things up, and he was trying to get used to playing with kind of a new uh, QB uh, uh, in Epstein. So I think that that partially contributes to why he may not have improved upon his shooting percentage, but I think he will his senior year. He's going to be a little bit stronger, just another year wiser. Epstein is off the chain, so I think that he'll he'll get that sorted out. Over Hopkins' first nine games, he failed to get to three points on six occasions. So for him, that's not very good. He only scored three or more points three times over those first nine games. So for him, that was a huge letdown. And part of the reason his point totals uh, only kind of leveled off between his sophomore and junior year. Over their last seven games, he reached three or more points six times, three point, uh, one four point and two five point games. So over those last seven games, he reached three or more points six times. So you see he kind of got used to playing with Epstein when your season is on the line as it was towards the end of their year, do or die ball tends to get, you know, bring the best out in, in tough kids. And he is a tough kid. So he may have started slow, but that was to be expected without those guys lose Stanwick, Tinney uh, to play off of. And he's getting used to Epstein. 
you know, as a fra- as a freshman, nonetheless. So, you know, no clear. And, and then the other big thing was there was no clear, just dirty midfielder. Tinney was that dirty midfielder that drew poles and extra attention. So they end up having to split their attention up between the attack and the midfield. Uh, defenses were really able to focus on the Hopkins attack, specifically in the beginning of the season. And towards the end of the season, that didn't happen because of the next two guys I'm going to talk about. But uh, for 2020, I expect Williams and Epstein are going to, you know, they've built chemistry for a season. So I expect that it's going to translate to a 50 plus 60 plus performance for Williams as I thought it was going to in his junior season. So I think he'll get 50 plus 60 plus, let's say 55. And if he, if he can put up 55, that will, I think that would please both him and uh, Petro. So part of the reason um, we saw Epstein and, Williams tear it up towards the end of the season was because of guys like uh, Forey Smith, who will be a senior midfielder, 21 goals, five assists, 26 points, 45% shooting percentage, 73% on on cage, only six turnovers as a mid. Um, he'll be looking. He'll be looked to to anchor a, a big chunk of this offense here coming up in 2020. 13 points over Hopkins' first 12 games, so not bad, but pedestrian. He put up 13 points over their last four games did Forey Smith. So he's going to do big things coming up in his senior year. Uh, The four games that he tore it up, he had four against Maryland, two against Maryland in that second game, four against Penn State, and three against Notre Dame to close the season out. So that is a huge final, uh, just a huge way to to, to close out the the 2019 season. Uh, Seems like he's, you know, kind of started to play bigger once the the conference game started to play. And I don't know if that was maybe just a shift of how they started playing guys uh, or what happened at that point. If, if maybe injuries played into that. But, you know, he had a four goal game against Michigan in there. I think that was their first big uh, their first conference game and then quiet for a couple of weeks and then just blew up those those last four games at a time when they needed him to. You know, and that included tournament play. So it was a great time to grow up and, uh, you know, kind of show your potential, especially coming into the next year as they're voting for captains and figuring out who's going to lead each squad. He'll need to play a bigger role in 2020, obviously, as they're losing, you know, Kyle Marr and some other guys in Concanon off that offensive side of the field. Uh, they'll look to him to get into the same area. I think 35 points, maybe 40 to 43 would probably be a realistic expectation for Smith in his senior year. And uh, but I think, you know, Big things are going to be expected of him, and I think that he's he's just you know he's going to have a hell of a time here. Uh, I look forward to him making me wrong though, and maybe putting up more because he could. Uh, the next two guys also played played key roles in Hopkins' late season success as they developed. And number three, Connor DeSimone, and number one, Brett Baskin. Both will be juniors, I believe, in twenty twenty. Uh, DeSimone, four goals, thirteen assists, seventeen ground balls, terrible shooting percentage, eleven percent. Um, so probably needs to get that up, but if he can get that up, you could see how he'd end up automatically in the area of 23 to 25 points, uh, 50% on cage, nine turnovers. That's a little bit high considering, uh, Brett Baskin, 13 goals, four assists. They just flipped and uh, 39% shooting percentage, almost 70% on cage, seven turnovers. Both of them capable Dodgers capable at carrying the ball will be dangerous on the offensive side of the ball. Both are going to one almost 100% as long as they stay healthy, be 20 point 
plus scorers. Again, both of them very capable of getting above 30. So these are the types of guys like you look at Syracuse's midfield where it's just filled with guys that are capable of putting up 20 or 30 points. And these are the types of guys that Hopkins needed to develop. So Hopkins midfield is in pretty good shape coming into uh, 2020. And they've got a lot of guys that are going to be able to fill off the bench and new recruits coming in that are going to play key roles there as well. So both, though, are going to be hugely important in, in Hopkins' success in 2020. And uh, they'll need to develop a little bit more to take more pressure off Epstein and Williams. Now we're going to get into the defensive side of the ball. Number 44, Ray Pine, Jack Ray Pine will be a senior. Two assists in 2019, 26 ground balls, 13 caused turnovers, started all 16 games. That's a theme you're going to see between these next two guys that we talk about. Um, like many on the hop roster, finished strong towards the end of the season, as they all did, put up nine ground balls and four takeaways over Hopkins' last five games, played really tough defense over that time. He'll be looked upon to anchor the defense this season after they lose Foley, who was just a, a great senior leader. Expect 30-plus ground balls out of him. Just, you know, he's going to be a little bit more front and center, a little bit more team leader ish. Uh, so I don't expect huge numbers though. He's, you know, polls at this level, you're not going to see them get a ton of takeaways because teams are going to avoid them to a degree. Attackmen are going to avoid getting the ball taken away and not press quite as much. Um, so I think you'll see his ground ball numbers improve a little bit, maybe put up a couple of assists, maybe a goal. Um, but I think that the, the, the cause turnovers are going to remain in that area, 13 to 15, maybe even 13 to 17, because guys are going to avoid him. But you'll definitely see better results no matter what it is, whether guys are avoiding him or attacking him. Ray Pine is going to help anchor this defense. Another guy, number 16, Owen Caldwell. Uh, also a senior, two goals, one assist, three points, 31 ground balls and 11 cause turnovers. Flashy, gets up the field well, physical, and he will beat on people. A lot of penalty minutes out of this kid, uh, draw flags at times. He will lay lumber, but that's always good also. Capable pull, and he can take the ball away. He'll probably see a little bit more improvement, maybe, um, between these two seasons and his turnover numbers, just because you, you can't avoid all of the polls. And I feel like Ray Pine's the one that they're going to 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 definitely avoid. So maybe he ends up with 35 ground balls and 15 cost turnovers, something like that. But very capable, and um, he'll he'll help anchor this defense. He these two guys are, are a reason that even with losing Foley uh, and and Kuhn and some other guys, they're not going to fall off too badly on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, and then we've got the goalie, Ryan Darby. Now, the kicker here is Darby was mediocre at times. Uh, his save percentage overall, 40, uh, 448. So he's 44.8 save percentage. Um, had a good first half of the season and played pretty consistent. And I think that's where they thought he was the goalie. But unlike the rest of the team, he struggled down the stretch over the last five games. Now, maybe some of that was scheme and what they were trying to do. And you also consider they played Maryland twice, Penn State and Notre Dame over that the, the, that stretch. So that'd be tough for any goalie to have to, to bang those four games out back to back to back. So that could have played. Um, but he had a, let's see here, over Hopkins' first 11 games, he had eight games over 45%. Over Hopkins' final five games, he only got above 39% once. But like I said, Maryland, Maryland, Penn State, Notre Dame, and I forget who was right before Maryland, maybe Ohio State or somebody. Can't remember. Maybe it was Penn State even then too. So that is to be expected. He had a 55% game in the second matchup against Maryland, but went for 39, 15, 25, and 33 in four of those last five games when shit mattered the most. But Hopkins was still winning games during that stretch, and they, they beat Maryland. So that that's 
key. Have no fear, though. You can expect him to be better in 2020 when you're a goalie that's got tournament experience um, and, and you've played big ball for a team like Hopkins and you have a coach like Petro. Um, you're going to be capable of improving upon your numbers, and you would think that we'll see him develop. Um, but with goalies, it's also what's in front of them. So I, I he doesn't necessarily have to get above 47% for Hopkins to be successful because offensively they're going to be able to score some goals, but you'd like to see every all you'd like to see your goalies at 47% or better at this level. I think, especially where you have veteran defenders returning. And one of the kickers is as, as Petro has been willing to ditch goalies where they don't perform and, and give younger guys a chance. And then maybe even sometimes go back to those other goalies. So he's not against playing musical chairs with the goalkeeping position. If Darby doesn't earn it, but I'm hopeful and I'm, I'm confident that Darby is going to be able to keep that, that position on lock. He is a very solid goalie. Um, all in all, I think Hop- Hopkins' schedule is their worst enemy. And I say this every year for Hopkins. Syracuse and Hopkins, when they when Syracuse went into conference play and Hopkins went into conference play, where now you have to play these schools every year, um, they didn't ditch a lot of the really brutal non-conference rivalries. So I think Hopkins a little bit more so. I think Hopkins' schedule every year is, is the toughest schedule in the country when you really look at it. It doesn't always weigh that way because when you're a top-10 team – uh, and you're playing other you know, teams that are between 20 and 10, that, that, that game doesn't look as tough for you. But when you look at who they have to play every week, they're playing somebody who's capable. They may have one, maybe two throwaway games, but then even once they get into their conference, you're dealing with Penn State, Maryland, um, Ohio State, which is capable. Michigan at times has been capable. Rutgers. So in your conference, you're dealing with killers, but then you're still playing uh, Syracuse out of conference. And uh, off the top of my head, I can't even think of anymore. But, you you know, every year their schedule is brutal. So I think that's their worst enemy. I think that if they want to, every year is going to be that struggle to get to 500. Because if you drop a couple of those early games, once you get into your conference, now some of those games become even more important. So Hopkins was in danger of not even making tournaments towards the end of their season. And then once they got into conference play, conference play, they started winning and playing well when it mattered most. And that helped them. That's been their MO lately, but I, I, I still feel like that, that schedule's their worst enemy. So if they want to get to what were they at? Uh, nine and seven, if they want to get to nine and seven, that that's reasonable for them. Uh, they could get to say, say 10 and six, or they could go the other way and end up, uh, you know, eight and eight. Or something like that, but they have as good of a shot at, as anybody as long as they're 500 or better once they get into the tournament of winning it because that schedule is the crucible and it does it does really make them tough towards the end. Um, so if they but that's the brutal part. If you drop just let's say you play Syracuse early and you play Duke or somebody early and you drop those two games, you end up two and two say, after your first four, and then you still have the conference that you have to play in where you're still playing Penn State, Maryland, and the tournament you end up playing teams like Penn State, Maryland again, Ohio State. So that the, the schedule's brutal. And every year people are trying, I guess what I'm trying to say is every year people are trying to say that Hopkins has fallen off, Petro's fallen off, they need a coaching change at Johns Hopkins. But I think the reality is they might just need a scheduling change because when you look at what they do to themselves, a 9-7 and seven record uh, with their schedule is not that bad in today's lacrosse climate. That's elite still. You're, you're getting to 10 wins with the schedule that are getting even approaching 10 wins and good, getting above 500 with the schedule that Hopkins has on paper every single year. That's a huge accomplishment. So I, I, I've never gotten behind the talk. Uh, I like hearing the talk because I'm a Syracuse fan and grew up a Hopkins hater. So I like seeing all the 
all the anger out of the Hopkins fan base and everything like that. But I've never been one that thought Petro needed to go. I think Petro uh, is one of the, the best coaches of all time, and I do not think he has even come close to losing that team. I think what he's done is literally just said, you guys are going to pull up your skirts and you're going to play some serious lacrosse every fucking weekend. And uh, and it, it is by the end of the year, every year they play tough and there's they still beat teams in the first round of the NCAA tournament when they go. So I think if your team is consistently getting past the first round of the NCAA tournament, which Hopkins has done over the last 10 years, then I think that you're doing your job. You're getting there, you're winning a game, and then beyond that, everything's gravy because the NCAA tournament is uh, brutal. Brutal, I tell you. So that is it. That is the quick hit Hopkins preview. If you're going to light me up, make it be because I pronounced someone's name wrong or I forgot a really super obvious guy. Uh, don't light me up because I didn't mention some schmuck who sat the bench last year that you think is going to have a big year. Because as I said, that was not the intention of this video. But uh, it's it's cool for a guy like me who grew up a Syracuse fan who did not like certain teams. It's I, I've greatly enjoyed watching lacrosse from this perspective and being forced to kind of become a fan of everybody. You know, I, I, uh, in 2018, I became a huge fan of Kyle Marr, of uh, Cole Williams, because of the way they led that Hopkins team, and Hopkins had a lot of success that year, uh, beat Syracuse's ass in the Dome, talking shit all the way. And I hated that, but I liked those guys. I was, a I was able to kind of remove myself as being a Syracuse fan this last couple of seasons and, and uh, just become a fan of lacrosse in general. And it, it, it makes it a lot more fun, especially where Syracuse loses. I don't, uh, it used to wreck my weekend, and I'd be angry when Syracuse would lose a game that they weren't supposed to. I actually watched them lose to Marquette one year. I took my nephew to the game, and they lost to freaking Marquette at the Dome. Uh, so that was terrible, and I was really angry on the ride home that day. But watching it from this side of it, you know, I would have had at least reason to be optimistic because when Syracuse loses, it garners a lot of views on YouTube, so I can take advantage of that now and, and think about how it plays there. So that's it. Next week, we're going to do another fall ball talk on Tuesday uh, with Nagel, going through what Nagel covered. Be sure to check that out on Inside Lacrosse. Um, go to Inside Lacrosse and then just look up Jim Nagel as one of their authors, and you'll get to see his fall ball preview that I did in the first part of this podcast. And um, be sure to go to laxfactor.com. You can see the listen to this full podcast, part one and two together. Audio version will have both part one and part two embedded on the number 52, uh, episode 52 blog post up on the website at laxfactor.com. So you can go there and read an accompanying blog post, see both videos, see the audio podcast and everything else we have to offer. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, hit the notification bell, all that good crap. And go to laxfactor.com if you want to get some swag, hats, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and... I think I might have forgot to mention, we're going to raffle off these shorts. So comment down below. Any thought-provoking comment that adds to the discussion will be entered to win this pair of Rampage Lacrosse shorts. Uh, we're going to do it over the course of a couple of episodes, maybe by 56 to 60. I don't know. At some point when we have enough comments, I'll do that. So comment down below to win those. As always, thank you for listening, and see you.